welcome to This Girl Cam, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon. I'm back after the Easter break, and today I'm talking to Fiona Olivier, Public Affairs and Communications Leader at Sanofi. Born in Ireland, Fiona is now living in France with her husband and three sons. In our pre-interview chat that I have with every guest, Fiona gave me a brief overview of her life experiences, and she had me captivated from the start. An absolutely inspiring lady with a beautiful perspective on life. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to hear her story in more detail. So let's get going. Hi, Fiona. Thank you for joining me. Hello, Liv. Delighted to be here. Really pleased you've joined me. So thanks for that. And thank you again for flexing our recording day from yesterday. I had a few childcare issues yesterday with my childminder becoming ill. So we were very, really, very close to being at the stage of no podcast this week if you hadn't been flexible. So thank you. No problem at all. I think many of us have been in that situation. So happy to be flexible. Yeah, it's always fun. The last minute juggling of every appointment in your diary. So to kick us off, Fiona, and, and get things started, could you please introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about you and your life so far? Uh, right. So um, I'm Irish. I've been living in France for, I think, coming up to 27 years now. Married a Frenchman who I met in university. Three sons. Uh, 23, 21, and 18. And I have worked pretty much all my career in communications, public affairs, corporate affairs. And today I work at Sanofi, global head of corporate affairs for one of Sanofi's four divisions. And I'm a keen but not great gardener. I'm a keen but not great musician. And I'm a snow runner. So basically, I get my hands dipped into all sorts of things. So tell me about the, the musician then, because we spoke about this when we had our initial chat. So I learned the violin when, when I started when I was seven. My father played the violin. My grand, one of my grandmothers played the violin. One of my great-grandmothers, sorry, my great-grandfather played the violin. And so I started when I was seven, played a lot until I was about 18, and then just stopped. Stopped playing it for years and years. And then I took it up again actually after a cancer diagnosis in 2013, when I realized actually that music had this incredible power of healing. And I started playing again. And since then, I've actually been playing more Irish music now than the classical music and loving it. There's a fantastic traditional Irish music scene here in Paris. And so playing that, and I think the older I get, the more attached I'm getting to Ireland as well. So enjoying the music. And then I also, again, because I'd seen the power of healing with music, I got involved with refugees who are displaced musicians living in, in Paris and France and Europe, and then working with them to give them opportunities to, to perform and also to change the opinion really of local populations with respect to these people who are coming from other cultures. Wow. So how did that even come about? Do you know, do you remember back in 2015 when it was really at the sort of height of the Syrian crisis? And unfortunately, that's still ongoing. But there was the photograph of the little boy with the red shorts and the blue T-shirt on a beach in Turkey. His name was Alan. And that photo really impacted me. And I remember looking at it and thinking, what can I do at my level as a citizen faced with the magnitude of this crisis? And I really didn't see anything that I could do as a citizen. 
And I got a notion. I read an article about these musicians who were traveling from the UK, actually, to Calais, to the jungle in Calais, and they'd collected musical instruments. And I reached out to them and I said, look, can I just meet you there? Can I join you? And they were like, yeah, come on. So I literally drove up to Calais with my fiddle. And I remember the night before I went, spoke to one of my very good friends who's a musician here in Paris. And I said to him, Patty, I don't really know why I'm going. What am I attempting to achieve here? Is this me like trying to feel good about myself, going to the jungle, which was this really important, informal, terrible refugee camp in, on the outskirts of Calais with people trying to get to the UK. And he said to me, he said, if you only touch one person and for one minute, your interaction with that one person, you give them back their sense of agency and their sense of respect and you make a connection, then you've achieved something. And so I went with that sort of attitude and um, not really knowing what to expect, not really thinking that I was going to change the world. And it was an extraordinary weekend. I met so many people, played the fiddle, they sang. We laughed, we cried, and I drove home from that and I didn't sleep for about three weeks afterwards because of what I'd seen and experienced there. The conditions were just atrocious. Mm -hmm. But when I came back, I wanted to go back again, but I didn't really know how. When I, and, and so I founded an association, a very tiny little association called uh, Musique Sans Frontières Paris, Music Without Borders Paris. And since then, we, every year we do at least one concert. We do at least one workshop in a school and we work with exiled or displaced or refugee and migrant musicians to give them a chance to perform. So it's literally person by person, step by step. And since then, we've actually worked with about 80 musicians in total. We've touched about 300 kids in total and over, I would say, to our concerts and stuff like that, over a thousand people have come to our concerts. So it's, it's small scale stuff, but again meaningful and you can really see when you do these workshops with the kids or when you do the concerts how people's perceptions change and they're like I remember we did a concert with some people uh, Uyghurs from China and I remember afterwards a number of people came to me and said we had no idea of these people and what they were going through or likewise some musicians from Syria we brought uh, an orchestra to park to, to our town and that was also incredible because it was the first chance they'd had to reassemble and play in France. Yeah. So you've done that now for, what, about seven years, six or seven years? That's right. So, yeah, since 2015. That's quite a time commitment when you have a fairly significant job as well. For sure. I, for sure. I think, again, we're modest in what we're doing. If we were fully committed to this, we could probably do so much more. We could maybe seek proper funding, be a bit more ambitious in the planning. But look, we're doing what we can and also having fun and enjoying it as we're going along. But it's true, my kids are a little bit older now. My youngest fellow, he was, I think he was only about, a, he was only probably about 11 or so when we started. And the kids have been great because at the start, used to tell them, you have to come to this concert because you have to help out at it and be a bit of grumbling at the start. But now I think over the years, like my youngest one has been to all of our concerts. He helped at the bar and gets them involved a little bit. So it's maybe just a little bit part of what happens now is, okay, mom, she got one of her concerts. We've got to go. No, 
But what a thing to so embed in them from that age, through their teenage years, to be exposed to, say, those experiences and those different cultures that many people, let's say, who are coming to these concerts have had no idea and no exposure to at all. Well, it's a really positive thing, isn't it? For teenage boys who have such a narrow view on the world. <laughs> yeah, I actually think teenage boys are great. They have a, they, and I think there might even be some research on this, that teenage boys tend to, and I actually see this when I teach, I, sorry, this is another thing that I do. I teach at the Sorbonne University, the Sorbonne Nouvelle University in Paris. And I often find that the boys are bigger consumers of news and current affairs than the girls. And it always really disappoints me that the girls aren't actually consuming more of that and I and that would be something I would always advocate to the girls that I teach. Like guys, read up on what's happening in the world and not just limit yourself to what's being pumped out to you in your algorithms that you're looking at on social media. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've got twins, um, are they girls or boys? I do. I have I have twin girls, two so two two year old girls, a ten year old girl and a nine year old boy. And they are all, every single one of them are very different in personality. My boy is very sensitive. He's a little emotional rocket. <laughs> Our guinea pig died at the weekend. Oh, and I th- and he's still beside yeah. himself. <laughs> but you know what? Isn't it wonderful that he's able to have those emotions that so many men yeah. have not felt able to express yeah. for so long? Absolutely. I'm sure growing up at a time when yeah, there's, there's much more openness around emotion. It's a good thing. So, okay. So talk to me because you've already touched on a handful of things that you do, which sound like you have absolutely no downtime whatsoever. And your downtime probably isn't that down. <laughs> it's probably fairly active. Talk to me about what, and let's go on a deeper level, about what drives you. I would say it has evolved over the years. When I was younger, I was probably a bit more driven, get the career going, prove myself, get a decent salary so I could afford the nice things. I'm really honest and I would say that probably was me. I liked the nice handbags and the nice shoes. Great shoe collection, by the way. But I think in maybe the last 10 or 15 years, that has really changed where is it because I'm more comfortable with myself or just my priorities have shifted. Now I want to be useful. I do like being valued and recognized for my work. I'm not going to deny that. But I kind of, I do like to feel that I'm doing something. I'm making some kind of an impact somewhere, whether it's on a small scale or on a broader scale. So maybe my in my personal life, it's on a small scale, the work with the musicians, but it, through my professional work, changing policy or working on access programs that is going to help a broader number of people is what drives me. So feeling, yeah, feeling useful, feeling like I'm actually helping advance, make the world a better place, God Almighty. It sounds like I'm Miss, Miss World Speech here, but it's really, I would say it's really that. Be yeah. useful. Yeah. And has that changed? I know you, you touched very briefly on your cancer diagnosis. So maybe if you're happy to tell me a little bit more about that. And I presume... And, that's changed your or altered your outlook in in many ways going through that experience definitely i'm absolutely happy to talk about it i felt at the time if somebody like me working in healthcare wasn't able to talk about it and articulate what i was going through 
then how would people who don't have those opportunities articulate it? So I felt a certain obligation almost to to talk about it. But anyway, in my experience, I was 43 when through just a routine mammogram, it, it was picked up and total shock, Michelle shock. You find it hard to believe. But that first, that year was a really crappy year. A couple of surgeries, chemotherapy, radiation treatment, and all the rest of it. And I think the impact on my family, there was an impact. I don't necessarily think that I really understood it at the time, but looking back on it now, I do see how they each dealt with it in a very different way. My husband and my three kids, and they were all fantastic. But what I think what it did for me was I did during that period, I did think I actually stopped working, first of all. And that's a very personal choice to work or not to work through through a cancer. I made the choice not to work because I felt I wanted to focus on myself at this moment. And I just didn't feel that I would be able to deliver at work and manage this. So I chose not to work and it was the right choice for me. It may not be the right choice for others. And I did things like mindfulness classes. I started running thanks to a couple of friends of mine and tipping around in the garden. And then I picked up the fiddle and I started doing all of these things. And I think what it really did was it helped me to enjoy the small things and just take it a day at a time. And the expression literally stop and smell the roses. Mm. I actually literally used to stop and smell the roses. It sounds so so silly, but that's kind of part of mindfulness as well. It's just like really living in the instant moment. And I would say that's what part of what got me through it. But also, I think it changed my perspective to a certain extent, which is rather than seeking out this ultimate goal or trying to achieve the ultimate success, it's just just living the moment, enjoying the small things, the interactions with people one step at a time, one person at a time. That's that's how I got through it. And that's maybe how it changed my perception of things. Is that something that you feel you still keep up with now? Is it something, perhaps a barometer at times of, of stress? I think it fundamentally changed me in that I feel like I'm a better person. That sounds a bit ridiculous, but I feel like I take time now to do stuff and enjoy stuff. And I know, and I do loads of stuff, probably too much stuff, actually, to be honest with you. But I was always a bit like that. I was always like, I never really sat still anyway. But now I'm doing it, but I'm doing it like with things that give me energy or like I'm doing it because it's stuff that, that I really enjoy doing. And so that, I think that's a certain, a certain satisfaction in that. Work is important to me and my job is important to me. And I'm in a role where I'm probably always on. Like your mo- like my phone is always in my hand, working in corporate affairs, or you're working with external stakeholders, you're working with media, you're working with patient advocacy groups, you're working with policymakers. So you're, you're constantly uh, in touch with the external world and you're at the front end of a lot of issues and crises when they happen in in healthcare. So I guess that having that sort of job, which is a lot of tension and sometimes pressure, being able to take the time to do these other things maybe gives you a bit more balance and perspective. Yeah. So on that note, you touched on work a little bit there. Tell me a little bit more about what led you into this particular career route. I studied communications in Dublin City University. 
in started in 1989. And I remember when I was applying to that course, I went to a really great school in, in, in Limerick called Laurel Hill. And I remember the career guidance teacher saying to me, but nobody from the school has ever gone and done that. Why would you go and do that? And I was in a school where everything was possible. Like the, it was actually with nuns, but, and they were brilliant. And they used to tell us that everything was possible and pushed a lot of us into STEM, actually. And I think they were hoping that I would go and do something maybe more in STEM or in teaching or something like that. And I remember it was, I think it goes back to the, because even back then at school, I was involved in a hundred different things, set up the photography society and I played sport and I was playing music and all that kind of stuff. So I went into communications and just through the years of one thing led to another thing and one country led to another country. And it broadened out a little bit more from communications and then it was more public affairs and then there was patient engagement and, and then the broader corporate affairs, which includes all of that. So government affairs, public affairs, communications, CSR and all of that stuff. So I, I think it's just a little bit like a rolling stone that gathered momentum and gathered new experiences. Do you ever think of, as I say, we talk a lot about sliding doors and pivotal moments. Is there ever a point in your life where you think things could have gone very differently and you consider a whole different career and a different world for you? I think my life is made of sliding doors, actually, and all the different <laughs> trains that I didn't take or that and I'm taking a lot of trains, by the way, do. Uh, definitely, yeah. If I had not done that course in communications, I think I would have been a in a very different place. I actually almost went to Aberdeen to study physiotherapy. That was the other option that I had on the table. So like very different pathway. And the only reason I didn't go was because I had actually just found my place to live in Dublin. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to uproot myself now and go to Aberdeen. So that could have brought me in a totally different pathway. Another one, another, I'd say, major sliding doors moment was in my very early 20s. I had a couple of years experience in Dublin under my belt. And my then boyfriend, now husband, was a Frenchman. He was moving to Poland to do his national service for a French company. And all my friends, they were all, they were all going to like Australia and London and New York and the US to have these fantastic experiences. And then I announced, I'm going to Poland. I'm moving to Poland for a year. And it was, this is back in 1994. So it was very interesting time. The country was opening up, amazing country. The country was just opening up. And I went over there. My first job, I was hired by an Irish pub to make the pub authentic, to make it authentically Irish. So I was teaching Irish dancing and fiddle and actually that I did play the fiddle for that year and Irish literature, things like that. I would spend my day researching this up in the library of the British Council and then give a talk on Irish history and literature. But look, that year was a bit of a, it was an unusual year and I did all sorts of interesting things. I think it gave me a huge sense of resilience and it taught me that you can do anything really. Put your mind to it. Like I was doing all this stuff for the Irish pub. Then I was hired by the local foreign investment and privatization office in the city hall to help them edit their brochures to attract foreign investment. And there's fabulous stories that I can tell if you've more time about some of these experiences. But after that experience, I realized there's a lot I could do if I put my mind to it. And if you just get over yourself, really just 
and I'm not going to say not care because I do care, but if you just get over yourself and say, what's the worst that's going to happen to me if this doesn't work out? And I, and that was my experience. So I think if I hadn't gone to Poland, I may never have married the French man. I may never have moved to France. I may never have had the life that I have, this very great life that I have now with the French man, with my sons in France and so on. But did so, you yeah. from Poland then? Did you go to France straight from Poland? How did you end up in France? Oh, so I had another notion, which was, so in Poland, at the end of that year, I was thinking, I, I really do want to get be successful in communications. And I thought after having spent the year in Poland, would anybody ever take me seriously because of this sort of stuff that I was doing? And so I said, London is the center of communications, of the communications industry. And so I, I moved to London and worked for Whitbread, actually, for Beefeater Restaurants and Pub. I was one of the PR managers there. And that was, God, so that was back in 1995. And it was around the, when the mad cow crisis hit. And so you can imagine being very young and being a PR manager for a company called Beef Eater when the mad cow crisis erupts. So we, we, I remember looking out one day into the office car park, which was beside one of the Beef Eater restaurants. And there were like German TV crews out there wanting to understand how we were coping with the Beef Eater, with the beef crisis. Look, I went to London. I did that for two and a half years. We actually got married. I stayed in London for about a year after we got married and my husband was in Paris and it was a crazy situation. We were over and back to see each other every weekend. God. And then at one, one, yeah. And then one weekend I just said, okay, that's it. Like I'm moving to Paris because at the time it wasn't really an opportunity. There weren't really that many jobs in Ireland and now, London was not going to be home to either of us. He's French and I was Irish. And while I had a great experience there, we wanted to live in either Ireland or Paris. So I just said, okay, look, I'm moving to Paris. And Liv, this is a little bit the craziness of the way I function, that even when we got married, we never really thought through, where are we going to live? And when will we be together? So it took us a year after the wedding to get her acts together and for me to move to Paris. And here I am since then. So that was back in 1997. I think that's quite nice, though, that you just, it's more important that you're married than all the logistics. They can all come later. But you're right. And my mum had a fantastic expression. My mum has great expressions. She had a fantastic expression that when she married my father, uh, that it didn't matter where they were or if they had any money or n or anything that's you know, that they would travel the roads together. That was the expression, that, that they would go wherever they needed to go together because they were in love. That's so lovely. So what about when you started having children? Where were you working when you first got pregnant and what was that like? I was working for a PR agency called Ketchum in Paris. And it was... Not actually, I was just in, I'll just tell you a quick story. I was hired by that PR agency to work on a project for FIFA because it was the year before the 1998 FIFA World Cup, which took place in Paris, as all the football fans on your podcast will know. <laughs> and at the time, the French didn't really care that the World Cup was being played in France. 
And so FIFA and the 12 official sponsors wanted to create a little bit of excitement. So I was hired to manage this project, which was basically to bring the World Cup trophy around France and to sort of organize events and stuff like that. So we got over the World Cup and I got pregnant with my first son and I was still working for the agency and that was back in 1999. And how was that then? How was life juggling Uh, agency life and young children? Agency life and young children is not always easy and it wasn't easy back then, but we managed. So, and in fact, this is, I think, something that you were talking with childcare at the start, Liv. And I know in France, it's very different. The French government has been very good to promote, to help women with childcare and to encourage women to get back into the workplace and so on. But we made a decision and look back then our salaries weren't fantastic and we made a decision to have a nanny and we couldn't afford a nanny by ourselves clearly back then. So we shared a nanny with another family and, and it was a brilliant experience. We still remain very friendly with that family and they had a baby the same age as our son. And so we shared the cost and she would come one week to our house and one week to their house. And I think it really saved us. Because we didn't have any family in Paris. Yeah. And and my husband pitched in, clearly he pitched in and that was really the only way we could have done it. So we made it work. But a lot of, let's say, my salary went into the childcare or a lot of his salary, whichever way you look at it, basically a lot of one of our salaries went into the childcare. Yeah. Yeah. It's essential though, isn't it? Everybody has a different experience and it is entirely personal, but I could not not work. I need the support of childcare and I think my kids benefit from it as well. But yeah, each their own. But I very much respect and love my child minder <laughs> and I'm hoping she stays well for the foreseeable <laughs> after, after yesterday. So after the first couple of years when we shared a child minder, then we, that family moved to Toulouse. And so we had to find a new child minder just for us. And we did. And her name is Paula. And Paula has been with us since then. So she's been with us for over 20 years. Now she works part-time with us. But you can imagine she's just such an integral part of our family. Yeah. She's seen three boys grow up. She's just fantastic. And a lot of my success is thanks to Paula. I must, I'm going to tell her that. You should. I think you should make her listen to this, actually. <laughs> Definitely. So on that note, then, that's a really good point around work-life balance. What are your thoughts around work-life balance? I'm not going to set myself up as a role model for work-life balance, but I think I do have a decent enough work-life balance. I mentioned earlier on, I'm on a lot because of my role, which can require an issue happens. If an issue happens over the weekend, it happens over the weekend. But other than that, like I don't work at weekends if I don't have to, if, there's not, if I'm not dealing with a crisis. I do things like I find time to just step out. For example, if I'm working for, from home, I would try, if I had five minutes, I would just walk around the garden. I take those little micro breaks. When the kids were a lot younger, I would sometimes slot in a couple of hours in an afternoon and go and maybe do the school outing to the local mm. firm or whatever it was take a half day depending on what it was or an odd time be there at the school gates to pick them up so I think I've been good at my life is very mixed with all sorts of stuff but trying to find the right moments 
uh, to do something that was meaningful at that at that time. Yeah. But again, I'm not going to say like I'm the person that was fully dedicated to work from morning until evening and then that's it. Like things kind of creep in a little bit in and out, but I'm okay with that because that works for me. But I would never expect that from anybody I work with because that's not how they function. And I think that's, I think that's what's important is to understand what, what works for people and what they need in their, uh, for their work-life balance and for their uh, mental health and well-being and so on. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I'm not, not a morning person. Uh, so you'll never find me on the boards at eight o'clock. Not the five a.m. starts, no. No. Although I had a seven a.m. start this morning with China, but in general I wouldn't be wouldn't be up too early, no. No, fair enough. So tell me a little bit. What sort of support have you received in your career? Do you have a particular mentor, or are you a mentor for anyone else? I do mentor people. And I love doing it. I think it's a great, it's a great way. Well, I actually learn more from them than they do from me, to be honest with you. But I definitely mentor people, men and women. So that's the first thing. Personally, I've never actually had a mentor myself, really. But I've been very good at knowing in my professional entourage, like who I could reach out to for advice on different things at different times. And I've always enjoyed those conversations where you know, you can trust these people, you can go to them and discuss something. Maybe it's to do with a career change or something that's happening in, in, in work. What I would say, though, is and maybe other people have said this to you. What's as important, if not more important than a mentor is a sponsor. And a sponsor is somebody who will actually advocate for you or speak up for you in an organization. Who are the people that you know are looking out for you and would maybe speak up on your behalf in some of those senior executive meetings and so on. That's the first thing. And then the other thing I would say, and it's only something that I really realized in the last year or so, is having somebody who helps you with your blind spot. And this is an unusual one. And it really only came to light in the last year, as I said, one of my colleagues, one of my peers in my current role he really plays that role where he helps me see things that I may not have seen otherwise. And I think I, I do it a little bit for him as well. And it just happened by chance because in this instance, he's been in the company a long time, really understands the culture. And I was new and I just learned a lot from just listening to him. And then over time, from business perspective, I also pick up a lot. So I would say sponsors and people who help you with your blind spot are as important, if not more so, than a mentor. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I don't think anyone has talked about sponsors so much before, but it is a conversation I had so with someone recently offline. It's, it made me wonder if more people should be encouraged to, to find sponsors as such. Again, particularly females in the industry who aren't necessarily great at advocating for themselves. And it's not like somebody is going to declare themselves your sponsor, no. but it's building those kinds of relationships with people who there's trust, they see yeah. what you do. They recognize you for your skills, your expertise and what you bring to the table, but they're not necessarily your boss, but that they can advocate for you. So it's almost like an organic exercise. I think it happens over time and probably 
um, you know, it would take a year or two being in an organization to start building up that network of people who you could consider your sponsors. Yeah. And different people have impacts in many different at many different stages of your life and career, don't they? Absolutely. I think that's that's really true that as you grow, so do they. And, you know, somebody might be the right fit or person for you at a particular moment in a particular role. And then you change or the role changes or they change or their role changes. And so you move apart or not. And I think that sort of notion of organic to me is important because it should never be something fixed. No. Things just evolve all the time. So... Fiona, I'm conscious of time, so I am going to let you go soon. But I do want to just touch on with you what advice, if you could go back and give yourself advice to your younger self before you even started on your on your career path, what would it be, do you think? And also, what advice would you offer other people joining the industry now? We talked about childcare. I would say if you're a young woman thinking about or hoping to have kids, then get yourself set up with good childcare. It's an absolute must and do whatever it is you need to do to keep that childcare robust and safe, preserve it. The other thing that I tend to also say a lot to younger women, which is to keep financial independence. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not saying have separate accounts. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is have options. And I think I've seen in some instances, women who don't have any sort of form of financial independence or agency, and your options are limited if things ever get tough. Um, the other thing I would say is nurture your friends. I'm absolutely privileged. I have a fantastic bunch of friends from college days and before and now who have stuck with me through thick and thin when I was sick, when my job is going great or when my job is maybe not going great. Because I think that women sisterhood is so important to be able to kind of talk to people about what's going on in your professional life but personal life so people who understand you the last thing maybe I would say is it's maybe less related to healthcare is making sure that you have something for yourself like that you have some activity or hobby or something that is just for you and that's not work related it's not family related I think it's really important to have some kind of an outlet and then maybe just to give something maybe on healthcare, it's a fantastic industry to come into. It's changed a lot in the years I've been there. Try and understand the external world and the healthcare ecosystem in which we operate, because it is having such an impact on how the industry needs to change. And the more connected you are to what's happening outside of your organization, better value and impact you can have because you can bring that into the organization. I think our sector has traditionally been very internally focused, looking at the regulations and how we apply them and all that kind of stuff, rather than doing that. Plus, how are we actually meeting stakeholders' needs? Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Thank you. Will you do me a favour, Fiona? Will you send me the details of your charity and I will add it to the episode show notes just so that people can go and have a look at it? I will. I certainly will. There's a few links to nice videos that people can look at. There, There's no fantastic website now or anything, so send you what I have. 
But yeah, that's great. I am I'm going to just to say thank you so much for sharing your story. I know there are more stories of Poland. I'd very much enjoy a glass of wine in Paris talking about your year in Poland one time. Oh, definitely. I would love that. I'll welcome you at any time. And yeah, lots of stories. Everybody has stories to tell, but definitely need the time to to tell them. But Liv, thank you for the opportunity. I hope that I hope that this will be of interest to, to some of your listeners and maybe I'll have the opportunity to connect with some of them in the future. Thank you. And that's it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to see more about Fiona's Music Without Borders project, do check the show notes for links to some videos. If you haven't done so yet and you're enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe or hit follow. It makes a massive difference. You can now also join this Gilcam as a member where you'll get invited to join recording sessions, regular mentions on the show and discounted or free tickets to our live events. To find out more, head to patreon.com thisgirlcam. As always, go to thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and to find out who my guest is next week. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all under this girl cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.